Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Jason Schratzweiser has been the International Game Fish Association's Director of Conservation since 2003. An angler and holder of a master's degree in marine biology, he passionately oversees the organization's conservation-related activities such as collaborative research, fisheries policy, and advocacy. Jason was instrumental in the passage of the Billfish Conservation Act of 2012 and is the co-director of the IGFA Great Marlin Race. In this episode of Anchored, Jason and I discuss IGFA's history and the controversy that surrounds it. We talk about chasing records, hanging fish, and the work his organization has done to help protect marlin stocks. Finally, we talk about the future of the IGFA and if it has a place in our world today. My name is Jason Schratweiser. Schratweiser. That's it. Sounds like something you put in a sausage bun. <laughs> it's German, and I actually found out what it meant several years ago. What does it mean? <laughs> I was in Germany for a, uh, for a fisheries conference, and I got the uh, entomology from two credible sources, I think. One was my cab driver. The other one was a uh, Swiss PhD biologist, and it literally translates to a homeless person that hangs out in the meadow. There are worse things to be. You know, when it's sunny and nice outside, you know, and I see a nice piece of grass, you know, why not just lay down for a minute, <laughs> right. take it all in. So are the, that's your roots and you're German? Yeah, I think primarily German-Irish. You know, it seems to be split both sides on uh, my mother and father's side of the family. Where did you end up growing up? Uh, Virginia Beach, Virginia. Yeah. All right, but you live in Florida now. Yeah, I lived in, I've lived in Florida since 1998. Did you grow up fishing? Yeah. Is that what you wanted to be when you grew up? 
No. You know, when I was a kid, I had like all kinds of dreams. Like, did I want to be an artist? Did I want to be a pilot? But I think once I started, you know, being an adolescent, I was really drawn to biology. You know, my father was an avid outdoorsman and a really good amateur naturalist. And he always had us watching PBS. This was before Discovery and stuff like that. Yeah. When you actually had good nature shows on and things like that. So I think that being outdoors and fishing and hunting and things like that really kind of drew me to, uh, I think, my academic background. What is your academic background? Uh, Marine biology. Okay. So you went to college for that? Yeah. Got your degree? Yeah, I got uh, my undergraduate, my master's, and then I was two years into a PhD and I decided, you know, I don't know if I want to go into tenure track academia. And I really took a hard look and said, you know, if I'm not going to do that route, do I really need to continue working on this and get my PhD given the fact that I have a master's? And uh, I I decided to to leave. I had a great project, a great advisor to work with and stuff like that. And it was really an exciting time, you know, to be working on questions and be around other people that are jazzed up about research. And it was really a difficult decision to make, but it turned out to be a really good decision for me. But what was your end goal? What did you what did you want? What did you see yourself doing for a living? You know, you get caught up into the whole doing research and you look up to people that are either ahead of you in school or certainly other professors, your major advisors, and they're typically, you know, professors doing research and things like that. And, you know, you get into doing research and answering questions and you, you like it. And so you think that's automatically what you're going to do. But I finally had to take a good look at, I, I remember a great quote from my master's advisor that said, Jason, this isn't a career. This is a lifestyle. And I said, yeah, I get it. But, you know, I looked at them and I said, you know, um, I was fortunate both my master's advisor and my PhD advisor were great guys. I'm still very close with them. They both love to fish. Right. And I said, you know what? these guys really don't get to fish as much <laughs> as I would like to be able to fish. So I ultimately got out and uh, started a career from there. Where'd you go? I immediately landed taking a very uh, low-level position with the De- Department of Environmental Protection in Florida, doing some lab work. I was uh, identifying invertebrates you know, from samples and stuff like that. And then uh, that lasted about six months, and then I was hired f- with the uh, Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission in their Division of Marine Fisheries. To do... I was doing angler outreach there. So they hired me in my position because I had an an academic background. I knew science, oddly enough, not fishery science at that time. I had had done more work with invertebrates than than fish per se. So I was somebody that could go liaise with the scientists if they had a new stock assessment that came out and I could understand, you know, why they were doing things. And then I was charged with going out and talking to anglers and angler speak and saying, okay, this is why we're adjusting red drum limits or sea trout limits or things like that. So that was the beginning of being able to kind of merge my passion in fishing with my academic background. So you are now the director of conservation Yeah. with the IGFA. I am. How long have you been doing that for? 2003, in fact. Oh, okay, so a long time. Next week, I start my 17th year there. Did you have any other jobs or positions before that? You know, I worked at FWC for two and a half years, and the guy that hired me, Rob Kramer, in 2002, was selected to be the next president at IGFA. He got there, and nine months later, he gives me a call and said, you know, I I could use some help here (laughs) if you're interested in trying something new. They didn't really have a director-level position for a biologist at the time. So I was hired there, and that's where I've been ever since. Okay, what is the IGFA? For people who are listening and have no idea what the acronym is, what is IGFA? The International Game Fish Association. When was it founded? 1939. So we're celebrating our 80th year. I mean, it's impressive. It is. I've got a lot of questions, and I've got a lot of debating to do with you. That's fine. But I'm very, I very much so respect the history of the IGFA. Okay, so who founded it? A guy named Michael Lerner. He was really a visionary. So he was a guy of means. He came from uh, 
a group of department stores and he retired from that and he liked to fish. And he was also very philanthropic. He gave a lot to the American Museum of Natural History in New York. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he had substantial largesse. So he would go on these fishing expeditions and he would take cinematographers, not only people to take pictures, but cinematographers to take yeah. video, which is really odd back in the day, expensive. And he would take scientists with the American Museum of Natural History with him too. So they collected samples on what back then were really, really poorly understood fishes you know, marlins and swordfish and things like that. And these samples ultimately came back in the form of molds to the American Museum of Natural History. And we have some old photos of dioramas of full-length swordfish and marlin. And, you know, and I always think about how interesting it must have been to be in the late 30s, early 40s, and walking through this museum before the internet, before TV, Discovery Channel, and look up and say, gosh, stuff like that actually swims in our oceans. Was it just him? I mean, obviously him and the people who he would bring along on his he expeditions. Was, he was the founding force for that. But at the time, there was a movement among some other venerable fishing organizations like the British Tooney Club, Game Fishing Association of Australia, which is actually two years older than IGFA, to really come up with a, a unified set of angling regulations so that we could standardize the way we fish, which would facilitate competition and then ultimately records. Okay, this is where my questions really start to come like mm-hmm. hammering it. Were competitions big back then? Or were people just trying to feed themselves? Uh, you know, I think the, back then that was really the birth of, of recreational fishing. And, and Michael Lerner was looking at this from two different angles. One, he wanted to make fishing a real sport. So every, fo- every sport needs rules. But the other thing that he had real vision for is that he wanted to use the sport of angling not only as recreation, but as a source of scientific data. So we could learn. Which makes sense to me. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. But why sport? Well, I mean, I guess it just depends on what your definition of sport is. To me, a sport is something that has a set of rules that standardizes behavior or practices and allows you to compare your performance with somebody else. And you know that's what fishermen do. I'm not a competitive fisherman. I don't like to fish in tournaments, but even subliminally sometimes, I'm thinking, I wonder how I did today compared to my buddy who fished or something like that. I think that's a man thing because I literally, there's nothing farther from my brain than how someone else did. Like I got into fishing to get away from people, not to have to start comparing myself Uh, to them. I hear you 100%. And the places that I fish, I, I fish to be away from people, and I'd never fished a tournament. But I, getting back to the sport thing, I think that's where that comes from, the idea of having a standardized set of practices that allows us to determine, okay, what's fishing ethically and what's not fishing ethically. Was it a rich guy thing? I mean, you said 1939, Great Depression, we're moving forward, we're in this new era. Were these guys... Were they bored and just looking for to compete because they had egos and money? No, I, I think... It, Definitely back then, it was composed of people that had the means to do saltwater fishing because IGFA's roots are really in saltwater fishing and primarily big game fishing. Which takes money. It does. It does now. I'm assuming it did did then. It did then, too. It did, too. I mean, arguably, some things are probably cheaper, maybe, than they were back then. But, I mean, yeah. Right. Okay, so he comes up with the IGFA. Mm -hmm. And how does it start to grow? How does it gain momentum? Well, what happens, first of all, is in the inaugural meeting, they decided to make the curator of fishes at the American Museum of Natural History, Dr. William King Gregory, the first president of IGFA. Okay. So we have a strong foothold or foundation in conservation and fishery science right from the beginning. And we were housed uh, initially in the American Museum of Natural History. 
um, that lasted for a few years. And we had other presidents we bounced around to in some different locations, Miami, um, Pompano, Fort Lauderdale, and where we are right now. How are they getting international? Did anyone that, back then no, that's, care? No, no, no. That's a really good point. So um, one of the things that we started with, so we weren't a membership organization like we are right now until the mid-70s. Okay. You know, we had an affiliation of clubs around the world that we worked with that kind of lended that international aspect to it. Fly fishing clubs were, uh, fishing clubs were huge. Yeah, they, they were. Um, in addition to that, we developed what we called an international network of representatives. So these were people around the world that we picked that were influential in their regional sphere to provide updates about what was going on in the fishing in their area mm-hmm. and to allow us to disseminate information to those regions. And still to that day, this committee of international representatives really is what makes IGFA truly, truly international. We have reps now in, I think, over 100 different countries around the world. Whoa. When was the peak of the IGFA? It depends on what you're looking at, you know, what regard. I mean, support. <sighs> And the masses. Supporting the masses. Well, again, we didn't become a membership organization where I say, April, we'd like you to become a member of IGFA till I think, 72 or 73. So is that kind of when it really started to steamroll? Yeah, I think so. Because before then, each president, you know, had kind of sufficient funding to fund the organization, limited as it was. And, you know, you weren't doing a lot of things. I mean, we weren't throwing out a lot of publications. I think you had an annual kind of a yearbook and things like that. Then along the way, we started doing kind of um, periodic publications, but it wasn't really until E.K. Harry came in the 70s that said, look, you know, we're trying to grow this organization. I can't do this privately. So let's make this a membership driven organization. Walk me through that timeline. So this is the 70s. Okay. And then we start to get more members and then we start to do more things. We develop our international um, marine angler at the time, okay, because we were saltwater focused until the late 70s, until we picked up the freshwater records from Field and Stream. Oh, from Field and Stream, okay. Exactly. And then also, uh, right around that time, we also picked up the saltwater fly fishing records from the Salty Fly Rotters of America. Why was Field and Stream keeping records? They've been, I forgot how long they were keeping records for. I mean, one of our, I think our oldest record on the books is for a yellow perch caught in 1886. So they had been keeping records for a long, long time. It makes sense from an, an archive stance, especially to be able to see if, if a particular species is starting to go down in size. When did this whole record as per your tippet and your weight class, all, that, all of that stuff come into play? You mean the minimum ratios that we have now? What's a minimum ratio? So what we have on the books right now is for you to qualify for a tippet record or a line class record, the fish you catch has to be half as big as the line or tippet class that you're applying for. So if you're going for a six-pound tippet record, Mm -hmm. your fish has got to be at least three pounds. Okay, so that cuts out a lot of the garbage of stupid records. You know, and again, that's that's a subjective thing. It is so subjective. I don't want to step back. No, it's, it's, it's something that's been hotly contested at IGFA. And I think that what we saw, um, you know, when I started in 2003, we started giving awards for folks that were getting the most records. We acknowledged two people that had made a major milestone in their lifetime by achieving over 100 records, Herb Ratner and Gene Duvall. And I think this was 2004. But that really lit a fire under people. And people were just trying to get records, you know, as many as they could. And to their credit, they were following the IGFA rules of the day. They were following the process. And, you know, they were getting records, you know. But some of these fish were 
admittedly small, especially if you consider the tackle they were using. I guess where I have a real, I I have so much to talk to you about that I almost don't know where to start. So I'm going to kind of throw it all out there and we'll pick it apart. I always can wrap my head around wanting to document the biggest fish. Mm -hmm. Where I have a more difficult time is trying to wrap my head around catching the biggest fish on the lightest line. Mm -hmm. So in 39, when he started it, was that part of how the records were kept or was he just keeping track of the biggest fish caught? Does that make sense? Yes, it does make sense. And I wish I had the original record book here to look at, but you know, we always kept all tackle records, which is the biggest fish of any species caught up to a 130 pound test. And then we started out with a really limited suite of species. And again, these were primarily saltwater focused and, you know, what you would consider more or less iconic species. Over time, we implemented different line classes, you know. Oh, so that happened line. later. Yeah. Over time, you know, you started to see things come in like two pound, four pound, six pound. I think at one pound, at one time there was only eight pound and then they broke out six pound from eight pound. I'd have to go back and look at that to make sure I'm correct. But but it wasn't the initial startup. Right. No, this, this whole thing evolved over time. Mm-hmm. You know, did it ever get wildly out of control? I'm assuming it did, which is why in 2016 you guys took a step back. We did take a look at it because we were seeing a lot of records come in for you know fish that were quite small on tackle that is really too heavy to really say that was sporting. And again, the people that were doing this were following IGFA rules. They were applying to everything that we stipulate, you know, and they were getting a record by our rules. So we took a look at it. And we also had noted that GFAA, Game Fishing Association of Australia, has had a minimum ratio of a one-to-one. I don't know how long that's been on the books. I think maybe as long as the organization. I'm not sure. So we thought about this and we vetted this very hard. So we have a committee of trustees and some people even outside the organization, our rules committee. And we looked at this and said, okay, this is what we're seeing with the situation with records coming in. This is what we're hearing from our membership and outside of our membership on this. Perhaps we should take a look at maybe defining what merits a true record catch on the line or tippet class. Okay. The word sporting mm-hmm. in fishing. I think sporting is using tackle that gives fish kind of a reasonable chance of winning sometimes. That's my personal definition. What's your argument to the people who argue you guys saying, yeah, but it's not fair because you have to fight the fish longer with a lighter line than you do if you just put on a hundred pound straight too. It depends. So I I fly fish primarily, but I think my easiest counterpoint to that comes from a conventional standpoint. If you look at some of the records for big fish, like billfish caught on super light line or even tippet. So we had, I think it was either two or four pound tippet record for Pacific sailfish. It's caught in 30 seconds. Yeah. And I do, I need to preface this by admitting that Dean, when I fished with Dean, because mm-hmm. he was determined to get me my first marlin on the fly. Right. Well, and we'll talk about that later. Um, but I was like, listen, Dean, I really, really just want to catch one and I want to be able to crank on it. And he tied on, I don't know what it was, maybe 30. What's the... GFAA actually goes up to 30. So they do 15 kg. IGFA does nothing more than 10 kg. 20. Okay. 20 yeah. So we were 20 then. And I didn't fight it any differently than I would have if it was 100. I thought I was going to have to initially. And then there was, honestly, Jason, there was a point where I was like, I want it to break off. Yeah. I was so tired because it immediately sounded and it just like stayed there. And I was trying to break that fish off and couldn't on 20. It, it, it's amazing what you can do pulling on 20. I don't do any bill fishing, but I do a fair amount of tarpon fishing. And um, I, I fish with 20. A lot of people say, no, nah, 16 is really all you need. But I like to use 20. And unless you do something stupid, it's hard to break off a fish. I mean, it's amazing how hard you can pull on a fish if you know what you're doing with 20-pound with tests. Is there an ethical 
counterpoint to that? I mean, could you say, well, with a hundred, you're more, you're going to break your fly line. You can't break it off. And then it's swimming around with a fly line in, in his mouth. I mean, there's a couple of different angles to that. I mean, one, yeah, fly line cores are generally rated up to maybe what, 40 pounds or something like that. 50 pounds. I think some of the GT lines are, are heavier and stuff like that. And I'll get back to our tarpon reference right now. So say you're, you know, you just want to go out and you're, you're going to use a homeboy leader of straight 60. If a shark comes along, how are you going to break that fish off easily? You know, and let what, did, fish... what comes along? A shark. A shark for, comes along. Yeah. You know, for example, and, and I've this is something that I've had to do, and a lot of other anglers have had to do. You know, you're fighting a fish. You know, especially during in the keys during the tarpon migration, sharks follow tarpon. You know, and if there's a shark even remotely close to that fish or interested, I always just break them off. I don't care, and you can do that by cupping the reel and pointing the rod straight at him. It's a lot harder to do if you've, you're fishing straight 60 or 80. Yeah, no, that's a point on the board for you guys. That's definitely for you guys. Like there's a big division between us here. But it is a seriously valid point. Yeah, and, it, point. And, and, and here's the other thing. And, and this is something that I've heard from kind of the luminaries that helped develop the rules that we use for fly fishing. So back in the day, the salty fly rotters, you know, the people that really contributed heavily to the development of those rules were people like Mark Sosin, Lefty Cray, Stu App. And in their opinion, and I, I contend this is correct, you know, fly fishing was never meant to be an unlimited tackle category. You know, it's meant to do something really well. Over the years, it's been morphed to be able to do more than probably it was intended to. I mean, obviously, we've gone from casting super small flies on super light rods to small trout to, you know, regularly catching big tarpon and, and even billfish if you're into that kind of thing. Let's talk about the rules for catching billfish sure. for IGFA. So for people listening, and they've heard me talk about this before, so I'm going to skip through it fast, but basically you're in the boat, you've got a whole crew. I mean, you can do it on your own. I'm not talented enough to do it on my own. It'd be hard to do it on your own. It would be very hard. Yeah. So for me anyway, you got a crew, the captain, he's finding fish. As soon as you see one, you know, you've got your, your decky. He's casting out his teaser bait. He's reeling it in. And then he goes, yep. I go, yep. I make the cast. He pulls out. I cast in. But the motor has to be killed. Well, yes. The defining moment there is that the boat must be out of gear before the fly is presented to the fish. But it's still, the boat is still, still moving. moving. It is. So how does that make any sense well, from a rule book stance? Well, you know, I, when I first came to IGFA, I talked to Mark Sosen quite a bit about this. And again, he was one of the people that was influential in, in, in writing these rules. And he said, you know, Jason, when it comes to making these rules, you really have to look at defining a measurable event that you can say either did or did not happen. Saying, okay, the boat is doing no more than a half a knot after it's out of gear or completely stopped. I mean, it, some of those things are impossible to quantify. So... That's what they settled on. Okay. What about the fact that a lot of these guys just hit reverse right away and start picking up line? Yeah. I mean, uh, that's something that happens quite a bit. I mean, because billfish, when you catch them, you, you want to try and get them before they go down. Yeah. Because <laughs> Otherwise, fly, it's torture. I know. <laughs> fly rods are long levers. They're, they're great for casting flies, but they're ill-equipped for lifting big fish that go deep. So the concept of you know backing up a boat to fish, and that's not unique to fly fishing either. That is something that's no. pervasive in conventional fishing. You know, some of these marlin are really high performance machines that can you know take several hundred yards of line before you know what's happening. So backing down on fish is customary, both in conventional and fly. I was surprised. I thought that IGFA rules would be from a free boat, no, from a, from a stalled, stalled boat. No, there, uh, there are some tournaments out there, I think, that you have to fish from a dead boat. And I think these are conventional tournaments, and that obviously makes it a lot harder. It's not species-specific. You use the boat for a lot of, right. of, of fish. And, and, I, and I think unless you're either like waiting for bonefish on your own or on a trout stream, 
there's always that element of assistance there. And I think to a point, you can also look at it that having the right team makes it kind of artful because if you have one person on that team that's not good at what they're supposed to be doing, you're not going to catch that fish. Yeah. And I think that's really, I think that's really important in bill fishing, whether it's fly or, or conventional. You've got to have a super great, talented group of folks all the way from the captain on the bridge to the deckies. And then, you know, the angler plays a big part too, but those other people have to be doing what they're doing right. It's like an orchestra. It, it, it really is. And if someone's pay- playing flat, everyone's got to pay for it. Yeah. And I've, I've, I've played with a few flat players and it sucks, Yeah, you know, and you, and, but anyway. Yeah. So before I move on to the next point, is there anything on the argument that we're fishing too light for the fish and it's exhausting, it's not fair to them? Anything on that point you want to touch on? Well, I mean, I think that a case could be made sometimes if you're not putting maximum pressure on that fish. And the longer the fish fights for, obviously they're building up lactic acid, they're getting fatigued, they're getting at risk with predators. But I don't think that you can say stereotypically that every time you're fishing with light tackle, that's going to happen because sometimes when you're fishing with light tackle, fish do different things because they're not being pulled on so hard. So for example, fishing with lighter tackle with billfish sometimes means they stay up more. So it's easier to catch them quicker as opposed to, you know, putting 40 pounds of drag on a stand-up rod or sitting down on a chair, you know, when that fish is really like, okay, I need to do something different. I'm going to go down deep. Yeah, you're, you're right about that. The other thing is I've noticed with with record chasers is that they tend to want to get that fish in almost before the fish even knows it's been hooked. Whereas I know for me, when I have a heavier line or like, or like a heavier leader, I'm like, ah, it's all right. I'll let it last a little bit longer because I know my line can take no, you, it. You want to savor it. I mean, uh, when you're so record fishing, I've been privileged to be able to spend some time on boats with some of the best record fishermen out there. And, um, and they are honestly, listen, they're talented anglers. They're, they're talented anglers, but their end game is getting that fish and documenting it. They have a specific goal in mind. They go out each day saying, I don't want to catch a fish. There's a specific fish I need to catch, and I want to catch that fish. The right one. The right one. Yeah, and I heard that a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know because Dean fishes with Tom. Just You mentioned Tom earlier. Yeah. He's How many records does Tom have? Proper records. All Tom's records are proper. You right. know, they're you know he's got you know probably more billfish records I think than any other angler. But you know he's been an icon in the tarpon fishery going way back to the Homo Sassa days. You know? He's incredibly passionate about the IGFA. Yeah, he and is. I spoke to him only briefly once on the phone, and just hearing him, like I could, I remember thinking to myself, I want to podcast him. I'm kind of afraid of him. Because he is going to just tear, like rip me a new one. Well, Tom just has no filter. I mean, he just tells it like it is. And I love talking to him. You know, he even if we disagree about stuff, you know, you're going to get Tom's full on opinion about what he's thinking. No two ways about it. So do you think that that takes a little bit away from the focus of fishing when you're not looking for little fish? Or do you think it's actually kinder on the fish that you're, you know, leaving those ones alone to go for the big boys? I think it's hard to look at it from that lens. You know, I I just look at record fishing where you're going out trying to get a specific fish and document that fish that day or over the course of days is just fundamentally different than me and you saying, okay, let's go out today and, you know, let's see if we can catch some redfish, snook or tarpon. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just different. Yeah. So that was my biggest turnoff initially with the IGFA. Yeah, I was, knew you didn't like the IGFA right away. We're yeah, you know, fat you old men that you know just wanted their names in, in the record books. I still feel a little bit of that, and we'll get to it. Oh, oh my um, God, am I fat and old? <laughs> no, you're not. But I also don't consider you a 
stereotypical record chaser. I consider you the director of conservation. It's Uh a very different vibe for me, but we'll get there. Moving forward then, the next thing that really deterred me and deters will continue forever until it's changed is having to kill the fish. Because Dean was like, let's get you a record, especially as a female. I mean, we could Mm -hmm. definitely go after records. But I said to Dean and Eddie, I'm not killing a fish. Um, I know there've been some changes. Can we talk about the changes and also what the future looks like for that? Well, so there's a couple misconceptions about IGFA rules. So one is people think that for any record, you have to kill the fish. That's not true. So we do stipulate that the fish cannot be weighed on a body of water on a boat. So that largely will preclude marlin and big tuna and things like that from being able to be weighed and released. But for a variety of other species and records, it's easily done. Um, but you, you used to have to kill them. No. Never. Never. That is a misconception. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the combination of the release ethic and anglers in combination with a new category that we instituted in 2011 that's predicated on length and not weight. And we also stipulate it's mandatory that you have to release those fish. So even if you catch a nice big mutton snapper and it, you want that record, you have to document that you released it alive. So we have years now that we're over half our records that come in are for release fish. Okay. But with, with billfish, it's just never going to happen. And unfortunately, well, yeah. they have the biggest impact because they're this enormous animal. And then the guys bring them into the shore to hang them on the dock mm-hmm. and the public sees it. Do you think that it creates a bad image or paints a bad picture for non-fishing public when they see these guys, these record chasers come in and hang the fish and start taking pictures and talking about numbers? Yeah, I mean, let's be clear. There are there are extreme groups out there that think that fishing is bad, period. Even catch and release fishing is tortured animals. For sure, yeah. But certainly bringing a big animal like that and you know making it visible to the masses and look at the environment or day that we're in now with social media. Everything's immediate. It circulates. And there's just some people that you're just never going to change their minds on that. And even though you could talk at nauseum about the number of fish that are taken recreationally versus the number of fish that are caught commercially each year. I mean, the argument just goes on and on. And it's it's a good argument. It is. And I mean, here, here's, here's the thing. You know, people always ask me, or not always, but sometimes ask me like, okay, how do you Reconcile the fact that you're you're the director of conservation for IGFA, but you also oversee world records and you work for a record keeping organization. There's a couple things that make me sleep very well at night. One is um, the number of records that come in. You know, in, in a given year, we may see between 400 and 800 records come in, and these range the gamut from obscure fish that are caught and never seen before that may weigh eight pounds to a few billfish. People think that there's this misconception that we're primarily getting records for these big tunas and sharks and billfish. That's not the case at all. Mm-hmm. You but know, that's what's seen, right? Like the, the public, when you come back in from well, fishing. Well, that's what's circulated. So, you know, um, if somebody catches a big, so Yvonne Chenard caught a, a big mutton snapper that got him the 20 pound tippet record. A fish like that, you know, compared to um, a marlin record that might weigh a thousand pounds or 500 pounds, size, you know, you know, that's, that stuff just spreads big time. So, but we don't get many records for fish like that. You know, I haven't run the stats recently, but you know, a lot of times the median saltwater weight for records coming in when I was looking at this was 30 pounds or less. Okay. So they're for smaller species of fish, fish that can be released. And then You know, the other thing that I think a lot of people aren't aware of is they don't know all the conservation work we're doing for fish around the world, especially billfish. That's a major, major, major part of this podcast. Um, Do you want to go down that road now? 
Sure. Can I just ask you one more thing before we go down that road? Yeah. Especially because that's what you specialize in. What is your personal take on the fact that the general public seems to say, if that fish is being taken home to eat it, it doesn't bother me. If it's being hung for a record, it makes me see red. I don't know if you can quantify it that well. I mean, you see strong opinions come out from people. And just because a record is killed and hung up doesn't mean it's not utilized. But it doesn't mean it is either. Right. I mean, I come from a philosophy, you know, hunting and fishing, that anything that I killed, whether it was a, a rabbit, a deer, or a red drum, if, if, if we brought it home, you ate it. But then you have to look at the other perspective where all these records, any record that comes into IGFA, if it's going to be approved, has to adhere to laws governing those species. So everything has to be done legally, you know. So you're looking at it now from okay, it's legal versus, okay, ethically, does that sit well with me as an individual? This question is age old and it's so polarized. I don't think we'll ever see complete agreement on that. And a lot of it is ignorance too, right? Let's talk about ant- hunting. People who are like, I'm all for eating animals, but I'm I'm totally against trophy hunting. And it's like, well, hang on. Do you even know what trophy hunting is? Like a lot of it is miseducation to the masses. Do you find, and this is where we'll enter into the, the conservation bit. Do you find that the IGFA is largely misunderstood because uh, maybe they're not doing a great job with education? I think that's exactly right. So we did some extensive market research. We had a new president start several years ago. And one of the things that he did is he commissioned some of the most comprehensive market research and survey work that the IGFA had ever seen. And one of the things was looking at kind of our share of voice out in the media compared to other organizations, both recreational and non-recreational fishing organizations. And some of the bad press that's out there about records and, and things like that, killing big fish, really overshadows the work that we were doing in conservation, which means I think that at the time we were really not doing a good enough job communicating the good work that we are doing. You know, I, And I can honestly say in the last two years, we've really redesigned our communications and how we do things. And I think the world is seeing now more that we have been doing and are continuing to do a lot of great conservation work around the world. But were you not having to share it? And this is where we go into the fat old white guys. I mean, the reality is you had a lot of people with lots of money backing you doing really great things for the environment, putting money back into Mm -hmm. these fisheries. And these guys don't, they don't get on social media and promote it. They don't have to. Right. You know what I mean? They know what they're doing. You guys know what they're doing. And that boys group or the boys club or whatever, the, the IGFA sorry, knows what they're doing. And, and, and the more I dug into this, the IGFA has done and is doing incredible things, which I want to really pick apart in the next little bit. But did, is that what's going on? Are you guys just not needing to touch the average trout bum? Do you have access to them? No, I, I think there's two parts. So one is that people picked up the, the record stuff and it's still one of the more popular things if you look at our social media analytics. People want to see pictures of cool fish. They like that. But I think that what we didn't do a good enough job is really publicizing what we're doing conservation-wise in a timely basis. And I think we're doing a lot better with that now. What's the advantage of publicizing it, though? I mean, that's my point. I don't feel like there was any advantage. Is there an advantage? Yeah, because it tells people that we're not an organization that's just killing fish, <laughs> which is incorrect um, on the whole. You know, some fish are being killed, but it shows that we're actually doing a lot to make sure that there's fish in the water that anglers can pursue and have fun with. Who started taking marlin off the menu? We did. Can you tell me about it? Yeah, so this was a uh, 
an interesting turn of events and it took many, many years. So it started with a lunch with a trustee one day, Tim Choate is his name, and he was asking me questions, you know, talking about Bill Fish and God, the state of billfish is just bad globally. I wonder who is importing the most, exporting the most, all this stuff. And he's like, do you know Jason? And I said, you know, Tim, I don't think there's ever been a comprehensive analysis that looks at the global markets of billfish. And he says, well, if you know somebody that can do it, I'll I'll fund it. And I said, I I do, as a matter of fact. So I had a colleague that had worked with the National Marine Fisheries Service as an economist, a survey guy. So he was well qualified to do this. We commissioned him to do the first ever global analysis of billfish markets. So we wanted to figure out, you know, which countries were harvesting the most and all that. Ooh, this is, I'm so interested. Which country was harvesting the most? Uh, well, the the, <laughs> the punchline is, and we fell out of our chairs when we saw this, the world's biggest importer of billfish was the United States. Okay, so America. Yep, and it was on the average, you know, this is dated information, but back uh, in 2007 when we did this, on average, looking back at roughly, you know, a 10-year time span, it was on the order of 166 metric tons of billfish coming into the U.S. each year. Oh, my God. And just to clarify, when I say billfish, I'm talking about marlin, spearfish, and sailfish, not swordfish. Oh, okay, gotcha. And this was all caught commercially? Caught commercially. Okay, how do they do it commercially? Most billfish mortality is actually bycatch on long lines that are set for tuna and uh, swordfish fisheries. Billfish on the whole don't get the market value that, you know, a yellowfin tuna or a bluefin tuna or a swordfish um, do, but they're retained because they're big and there's a market for it. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At the time, the U.S. had already made some major strides in billfish conservation. It had been illegal since, I think, the late 80s to commercially harvest Atlantic billfish or enter billfish that were caught in the Atlantic into trade. So we'd close that, but this report that we did also indicated that there might be a loophole so that fish coming in from the Pacific presumably could have actually been sourced from the Atlantic. In fact, looking at some of the custom clearance slips that came in, we saw countries that had both a Atlantic and Pacific coastline or countries with no Pacific coastline importing billfish into the United States. And there was really no kind of teeth or enforcement to this. So there was something called a certificate of eligibility that had to accompany any billfish product that came into the United States that attested that it was legally caught in the Pacific and was not caught in the Atlantic. However, it didn't have to be mandatorily reported to any government agency. So they got the dealer or wholesaler would say, yep, I got a COE. And he just filed it and did whatever. So there was probably a bit of a black market. But really what was happening is we had a flood of fish coming in from other countries. 
into the U.S. because the market would bear it. And a lot of people would say, you know, I don't really see that. And all I would say is Google Marlin. And I did it one time at work, and I think I found two sushi restaurants within three miles and four markets that were carrying it. You know, it was more pervasive than people thought. Yeah. Yeah, I, I see it. Well, in Australia, I see it. Yeah, so... What we started to do, and then we were working with a, an organization, then um, their organization's name now is Wild Oceans. They've been great partners with IGFA for a long time. You know, we said, okay, we're going to get to work on this. And I, the first step was really kind of a public awareness strategy, you know, because there's this fundamental disconnect between what people view from terrestrial ecosystems versus what they see in the marine world. So if you or I were at a restaurant and they said, okay, tonight special, we have tiger on the menu or bear or wolf. We'd say, gosh, no, there's not many of these things left and they have important roles as apex predators, blah, blah, blah. People don't know that about Marlin. I mean, most people, if you're in the Midwest in Ohio, you don't know what a Marlin is. You see a fat steak that looks good and okay, I'll, I'll buy that. So the first thing was to tell them that, hey, not only do these fish support very vibrant recreational fisheries that yield major economic benefits in, in certain regions around the world, in many ways they're like wolves and lions. They're apex predators. You know, once they get big, you know, they're at the top of the food chain and they have a very important ecosystem function there. So we did that, and that culminated in getting uh, a variety of celebrity chefs. Wolfgang Puck went Marlin Free, took a Marlin Free pledge. Some supermarkets like Wegmans and things like that did it. But after a couple of years, we realized that it, we we had to go the legislative route to be able to do that. As you do. Yeah. And uh, we were lucky in um, 2012, we had the Billfish Conservation Act pass, which prevented the import of any marlin, sailfish, or spearfish into the United States. We then had to meet with the National Marine Fisheries Service because their job was to determine the rule for that law. And they had a hard time understanding from the law that was passed and the legislative intent whether or not that should preclude Hawaii from being able to ship marlin from Hawaii that's landed there into the continental United States. And we said, look, the goal of this act was for conservation. You know, it wasn't meant to remove a, a foreign market and supplant it with a domestic one. So we had to go back because they couldn't figure out a rule for this. We went back and we got an amendment passed a year ago that says, no, any marlin that's caught in Hawaii has to remain in Hawaii. It can't come to the U.S. Jeez, that, that, I mean, that would have been a huge challenge. It was. Yeah, how long a total did it take? We, well, the, the process started in 2007 with that, analysis that gave us the data that showed that, hey, we're the biggest problem. What other data did you get? Um, you know, we, this economist looked at a variety of data, you know, global landings from the FAO, looking at custom clearance slip data that we have here. But, you know, we really had, you know, our, our thought was until we take care, you know, the U.S. does a really good job man, in managing fisheries. You know, I have to say we really do. On the whole, we're managed well, both commercially and recreationally. I mean, there there are the things with that are not being managed well here and there. But on the whole, we're doing good, much better than most other countries. But in the case of billfish that necessitate international management because they're so highly migratory, you know, our thoughts was it's really hard for us to advocate for better international management of billfish if we're the people that are importing the most. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, what, other, what other conservation work have you guys been doing or has been done. Are there any major accomplishments that the majority of the public just doesn't know about? Well, I mean, um, so 
alongside of that, you know, in, in, in 2012, we, we partnered with uh, Barbara Block's lab at Stanford University and started something called the IGFA Great Marlin Race, which is a satellite tagging program that pairs recreational anglers with very sophisticated satellite tags. So a lot of people are, are accustomed to small spaghetti tags that you tag fish with, with the hope that someday somebody else will catch them and you'll be able to determine, at least in terms of a linear line, how far they went and maybe how much they grew. These tags actually record data on fish every 30 seconds or minute that they're on. Yeah, they're sophisticated microcomputers. Wait, so when I was with these guys, because every time I've been on a marlin trip, they've always been tagging fish. Yeah. Is that what those are? No, these little spaghetti tags are not those. These these look like a small microphone. How much are they? Uh, $4,500 a piece. That's a lot of money. How many of them are there? Well, let's go back to the amount of data that you get out of this. So you're getting information where the fish is, what the temperature of the water is, how deep it's diving, how often it's diving. It catalogs that. These tags are programmed to stay on fish for 240 days. After that time, a signal goes to the tag. It decouples from the tether that's in the fish, and it floats to the surface. And then it starts transmitting information to an orbiting satellite. Oh my God, this is the coolest thing in the world. Okay. Then that information is then in turn transmitted to our partners at Stanford University. They take all these data and run it through a very sophisticated model and generate a track, not a straight line, but a track of where that fish went. I'll I'll show you some of these later. But in addition to that, we get information on what was the diving behavior, what portion of the water column are they spending most of their time, and at what time of the day. How many of them have been eaten by sharks? Uh, a couple. How, how do you know? How can you tell? Oh, dude, here, this is a really cool story. So there was some tagging that we've done off the Great Barrier Reef, and we could tell that, that the fish had been eaten because the light level went, went th- these tags actually record light level too. Oh my God. And the light level went dark. And the diving, but the tag was still functioning. And the, the diving behavior was really different from a marlin. So we knew it was a shark, but we could tell it was probably a mako, which they, or they're somewhat warm-blooded because the temperature registered inside that fish was higher than what the ambient water temperature would have been outside it. And, and luckily, the mako ingested the, the tag, and it still functions. So it floated to the top, and it reported the information. That is incredible. Are they going to use these on any other species? Oh, uh, satellite tags have been used on a variety of fish, from cobia to red drum. It, it, they're, they're, they're fairly large tags, so they're not you know, really applicable to super small fish, but they're being used on a, on a variety of animals. But is IGFA planning on focusing on another species? For tagging right now, we're, we're still doing billfish. So since 2012, actually, when we started this program, we've deployed over 400 of these tags in 21 locations around the world. And we've really created this global ocean atlas that shows connectivity between different regions and species and stuff like that. Can you find this information on the website? Uh, absolutely. It's on our, it's on our website. And, and the other really cool thing about it is when we started this program, we wanted these data to be used and immediately. So typically, you know, there's a lot of really good, talented people that are doing uh, tagging work on, on billfish around the world. But, you know, they're hustling for grant money. You know, so they get these grants to tag fish. They go out and do the research. The next step is to write up the papers, but you know, they're so competitive that they skip the next step and they go out and try to get another grant so they can get more tags and stuff like that. Instead of us kind of getting into that cycle, we wanted all these data to be non-proprietary to either IGFA or Stanford. So Barbara Block created an open access data portal system where all of these tag data are, you can go and filter for whatever species of billfish you're interested in and these tracks from around the world populate then all a scientist has to do is click on it and you can download raw data, process data, whatever. And we're seeing scientists 
around the world utilizing this now to answer questions about a variety of of billfish. But the IGFA is paying for it. I mean, do the math, 400 at 4,500. You know, this this entire program has been possible only from the benevolence of recreational anglers themselves that sponsor these tags. I mean, we have substantial back-end costs that we have to cover to work with Stanford and obviously our time on our end, but you know, all of these tags have been purchased from recreational anglers that realize, one, these billfish stocks are in trouble. Two, they're not getting the attention that they need from managers. And they want to be involved in the science. So this is citizen science, which is a really cool part of it. They're not just saying, okay, I'm going to give $4,500 to Stanford and they're going to do some cool research. They give us $4,500. We give them a tag, show them how to use the tag. They get to deploy it and they get to wait and see what happens. And then when the tag pops up, we give them a detailed report with all the information and they can see where their fish went. How many members does the IGFA have? Oh, off the top of my head right now, we changed our membership system a few years ago. So we had a variety of different tiers where you had a free membership that you could look at limited things online. There was an I membership. There was a full paying one. And I think since we've gotten rid of the lower tiered ones, I think we're under 10,000 members right now. Has the number gone down or has that number gone up? Well, the numbers have gone up and down over the years. You know, for a while we were doing things with, um, we ran a tournament, an offshore uh, and an inshore tournament series, a world championship. And the participants of those tournaments were gleaned from qualifying events from around the world. So all those tournaments, all the mem- all the people that fished those tournaments had to be members. So we had a, a substantial amount of members coming from those tournaments. But in 20, 2006, we decided that, you know, maybe we shouldn't be in the tournament business, you know, because there's some inherent liabilities with that. You know, we're currently in, in the process of reevaluating maybe do we want to get back in to the tournament component somehow, some way. But, you know, that, that created a bit of a flux in membership, you know, along the way. Do you see a future for the IGFA? Oh, absolutely. What do you see it as? Now that we've got a very different world with social media, new generation, very different. I mean, let me put it into perspective for you. I uh, was actually in Australia and ran across an an American guy, an old guy. He was like 80. And you know how nowadays you run into a 20-year-old and they're like, I have 200,000 followers on Instagram, so I'm something special. He did the same thing to me, but with the IGFA. He was like, well, I'm a member of the IGFA. And in my head, I was like, that really doesn't mean anything. Did it, did it mean something back then? Did it make you stand out? It, it, it means something now. So when we did this market research, we asked a number of questions of what would want to make people be an IGFA member, all the way from tangible things that you get from a, a record book, a patch or a shirt, to kind of the emotional side of things. The thing that scored the highest was a question that said, I want to be part of the IGFA because it's one of the oldest, most venerable recreational fishing organizations in the world. That's what this was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and Have so you found that that's changed now though. No, I, I think that's true now. I mean, this, these are data that just came out, you know, less than two years ago. So what was the demographic on that? Well, I don't have the complete breakdown, but it, it was interesting. So this market research not only pulled IGFA members, it pulled lapsed IGFA members and it had, it pulled people that were never IGFA members. So the question was, what would draw you most yeah. to becoming an IGFA member. So your question is, does IGFA has, have a future? Definitely. We've got 80 years of credibility. And I think there's 
untapped potential for us to do more, both from the standpoint of angler recognition. We're doing a variety of great conservation, not just on billfish. We're focusing on the other end of the food chain with a lot of forage fish work now, um, management for that. We've got a really stellar education program where we're teaching kids around the world how to fish um, ethically. So what would that look like? Oh, man. Uh, So we have a really great education department and um, some really smart folks there. And they developed something called a Passports to Fishing program. And it's a kit that has educational materials in different stations and rods and reels that are shipped around the country. So you have different stations with information on these mats. So you learn about knot tying. You learn about different types of tackle, how to be an ethical steward why conservation and fishing regulations are important. And you have this little passport that these kids go around and they, they complete a station, they get a stamp on it. And after they get a stamp, they can get a fishing rod and they can go outside and fish. Do you guys teach them about fishing light lines and catching records? It's nothing about records or anything like that. Okay, so you leave that part out of it and you just focus on them enjoying the fishing? This is to get kids out to fish in an ethical and safe manner. And also really, this education program has always used fishing as a carrot to develop the next generation of environmental stewards. What are the ethics of the IGFA Look, you know, speaking to a 10-year-old? To a 10-year-old, so um, first of all, you know, just really simple things like leave wherever you're fishing better than it was before then. You know, certainly don't throw any trash away. We talk about the perils of, you know, fishing line being discarded, what that does to animals, um, things like that. But even if it's not your trash, pick it up. You know, the, the connection between healthy habitats and vibrant fisheries is really stressed. Um, what about catch and release? Is that catch and release? We we certainly do, and we t- we teach people how to handle fish properly. We teach them to use de hookers because we we show them that you know slime may seem icky to you, but it's really important to fish because it protects them. And if you grab a fish with a dry towel and squeeze them, you're not only hurting the internal organs of that fish, but you're taking away a protective slime layer that could get them sick. You know? Do you teach them that they can also? keep fish yeah so it's like a balancing act yeah, absolutely i mean so we have a hypothetical fish on a table and it says okay the fishing season for this fish runs from this month to this month and the the size limit is from this to this and then we give them a tape measure and they say okay based on what you read here could you take this fish home if you wanted to i love it i yeah. love it anadromous fish does the igfa care about yeah. anadromous fish sure sure you know it's it's we obviously have a lot of records for, you know, a lot of angler recognition for, you know, the trout, you know, salmon and stuff like that. But in terms of conservation and things like that, we're trying to do a little bit more in fresh water. But, you know, our core has already been always been a lot in salt water. The other thing, April, that makes it difficult, too, is that we don't want to go out and kind of compete and reinvent the wheel um, on things. You know, if you look at trout, for example, TU does a fantastic job of advocating and, and developing habitat for trout. There's people doing it for salmon. Um, ironically, I do most of my work on billfish, but I'm, if you ask me if I'd rather go billfishing or go tarpon fishing, it'd be an obvious answer. I'd rather go tarpon. Mm-hmm. I'd love to do work on bonefish tarpon a permit, but bonefish and tarpon unlimited or BTT, excuse me, does a great job. And, you know, we believe that it, it kind of confuses donors to go out and try to say, Okay, we're the ones doing this work on this fish when there's another group doing it. What we do believe in is a collaborative approach to doing conservation work with other folks. And we've done that on a variety of issues. Something I found very interesting was when IGFA or the IGFA started adding the women's record category 
Can we talk about that? Yeah. So this goes back a few years. I forget exactly which year we did that. So historically, freshwater records were unisex. They weren't broken out for men's and women's, while our saltwater line class and tippet records were. So we said, you know, it's really not fair. You know, we should have a quality, you know, and, and we did that. And we saw, obviously, a lot of opportunities open up for women. It was um, like eight or some odd years ago. Cause I, does yeah, that sound about right? That sounds about right. Because I remember my inbox flooding with people really upset about it who wanted me to speak out on behalf of it. And I kept my mouth shut because I didn't necessarily agree with the criticism. Yeah, you, yeah we got it from some people saying, oh, I can do anything as well as a man can. And I said, you know, I'm not disagreeing with you at all. But this is just something to keep consistency between saltwater, line class, and tippet records, and freshwater. And here's, here's the counterpoint. So now, say for rainbow trout, you've got a woman's 12-pound tippet record and a men's 12-pound tippet record. If your 12-pound tippet record is bigger than a men's, you can say, I did it better. You know, it's, I, I don't think it has any inherent bias one way or another. And getting back to the, the, the fat white old man thing, I mean, you should see a lot of the applications that are coming in. You're seeing a lot of applications coming in from women, um, younger women. A lot of kids are getting excited about this too. Yeah, yeah I do see a lot of that. I do see a, a lot. Yeah. Actually, it's kind of, it's on the up and up. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I, I, think, it's, I think it's more diverse than people think, you know. Mm-hmm. How many different categories are there? Oh, gosh, off the top of my head. I mean, we have over 100 eligible species in both fresh and salt water that are eligible for line class, fly rod, and junior records. And then all tackle is essentially limitless. So all tackle, we compile records for the heaviest fish caught on any line up to 130 pounds. And the only criteria for that is the fish has to be a valid species. So it has to be recognized in the scientific community. It has to weigh a minimum of one pound, but it also has to be in the upper 50% of that species maximum recorded size. But what makes it eligible? Who makes those rules? You mean in terms of line class and fly rod? Species. Yeah. So um, that's a decision that's made through our... It had been through our rules committee. And, you know, it's the kind of thing that we would add new species periodically to those. And since I've been there in 2003, we've added well over a dozen or more species along that period of time. And we try to do so in a manner that takes into account, you know, trying to be international. So if we see a species where people are saying, you know, in this part of the world, this is really a popular species, we'd like to see that for a line class. You know, we'll consider that we keep a list of, of species that people have asked to uh, have included. Um, but we only do that sp- sporadically, you know, okay. from time to time. Um, okay. Is there anything that I've missed that you want to talk about? No, I, I just, um, you know, for folks out there that, you know, think that, you know, all that IGFA does is, is world records, you know, take a look at what we do. We have a newly designed website and I think it does a good job of showing that, you know, we're fairly diverse in what we do in terms of being the historian of angling, we do a lot in conservation and education, and we have a variety of, of angler recognition programs, even outside of world records. I mean, we have some really cool slam and trophy clubs, um, you know, so if you want to go out and get a grand slam, you can get a certificate for that. And we have a variety of different slam categories. 
trophy fish clubs that you don't have to kill fish for. You know, you can weigh these fish on a boat and you, or you can actually measure them to get a length one. So take a look and really see what the IGFA is about. And if it's, you know, an organization that you think might appeal to you, become a member. I think that's something that we need to remember is that, you know, we may not all agree with definitions and we may not all agree with records, but we can all agree that, uh, you know, on archives and history and documentation and science. And if that means it's going to cost 50 bucks to support you guys, even though we may not necessarily agree with definitions. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's worthwhile. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just important for anglers to be supportive of whatever group speaks to you. So, you know, if, if you're really hard into, you know, Masir fishing, you know, donate to the Masir trust, you know, cause they're the ones doing great work in India. But I think, um, too many anglers really are just kind of ambivalent about, you know, the whole idea of supporting something that means so much to them, you know, and fish need our help. Is there anything that you wanted to add or to ask me? No, I just appreciate the opportunity to come here and talk. Jason, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me. I appreciate it. Thank you. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy the show, please take a moment to leave a review about Anchored online. (laughs) 